sometimes I feel. I don't know. I don't know. Buona giornata, buona serata, buona giornata. There's not really time to relax and take an espresso for Juventus. <laughs> you don't have to get a You don't have to get a Attaccare! Attaccare! We are back. Euro Show, Monday evening, FNR Football Nation Radio, Nick Tabano, Josh Parrish. Welcome here today. Plenty happening in the world of football, plenty happening in clubland, uh, bigger issues happening in the international football sort of scheme of things right now. And we're going to go through all of it here on the show today. Um, obviously, a lot's been happening, as we did mention, with obviously what's happening on the field, but off it as well. Uh, before we get to that, though, Josh, we took a week off last week. We had a chance to put our feet up on a Monday evening. Um, we're back here today to kick off. Well, not to kick off autumn just yet. We're in the final day of summer. It's been a long summer, to say the least. But uh, we're coming towards the, you could say at least, the business end of the European football calendar at the moment. We had Champions League over the last couple of weeks. Things are heating up right now. Certainly are. And, I mean, Serie A continues to be our main focus because it is the league with the most twists and turns (laughs) and narrative arcs. Yes. Uh, But, you know, there are some other competitions that are still very much alive. La Liga's not done and dusted just yet. Sevilla... Uh, kept it going by by beating Raul Betis in the in the Seville derby. Uh, so, you know, we've got plenty to talk about today and not just international politics. No, but let, let's start there, though, Josh, because obviously over the last week, the discourse not only in sport, but really everywhere has been obviously the, the situation evolving in Ukraine at the moment uh, with Russia's invasion, um, which has really been just a harrowing, week and a bit it's it it continues to evolve and obviously as a result of all the sanctions happening and and the outcry from around the world sport gets brought into this obviously Russia play a massive part in sport not only in football but you think about in the Olympics and many other different sports around the world and uh, if we're going to bring it back to a football standpoint Josh um, in only about three weeks time Russia in a in World Cup qualifiers, the final round of European qualifiers. Um, and there's been a pushback from European nations saying they don't want to play the Russian national football team. Now, we know the Russian players obviously aren't involved in what's going on. They're, they are sort of the team that mm-hmm. represent the nation. Um, you know, they're not obviously the ones pushing what is happening over there. But there has been a big outcry, and we saw Poland come out, the Czech Republic, and I think Sweden all saying, we, we're just not going to play and we refuse. We'll boycott the games. And it was left in the hands of FIFA. I think that's all we need to say about it. It's been left in the hands of FIFA. We saw the IOC come out and, and condemn the actions. We saw all sorts of action taking place from Formula One, ATP. Every other organization was getting involved. But it was all left with FIFA. And this morning they came out and they said that, no, well, these games are still going to go ahead. They're not going to play under the actual name of Russia. It'll be under a similar sort of way that the Russians competed in at the Olympic Games. They'll compete, I believe, as the Football Union of Russia. Yes, indeed. So it'll be the Football Union of Russia, or RFU, uh, will play at neutral venues without crowds, and the Russian national anthem and flag have been banned. So it's symbolism that's been Been dropped, yeah. But it's not a very heavy sanction at all. And as we mentioned, it's not the player's fault, but 
in the situations like this, you've got to take action. And FIFA really, really fumbled the bag here. Yeah, I, I think you know they're in a difficult position, obviously, because it is a win and you're in uh, World Cup qualifier. Uh, so there's a lot on the line for these these nations. And with Poland being the team saying that they will boycott the game, you know, you dread the thought of Poland actually having to, you know, forfeit and and Russia being awarded the default three nil victory or the football union of Russia, we should say, uh, because they can't compete under their own name under this, this decision. Uh, but FIFA are in a pretty tough position here because it's hard to uh, not be accused of hypocrisy mm. given that the world cup, the last world cup only four years ago was held in Russia. So, you know, they were used as a political pawn by, by Vladimir Putin and, Johnny Infantino couldn't be more gushing in his praise mm. of Putin at the time as as a leader. There's a a video that emerged from the French locker room after they won the World Cup, and and Infantino, who seems to suck up to every politician and every person in power, um, you know, couldn't be more at the beck and call of of this guy. Doesn't really want anything to do with him. He's he's already extracted what he needed out of FIFA. Uh, in terms of political capital and at that tournament, and and you think back to that those infamous images of uh, Infantino placating the the two dictators at the opening game with Saudi Arabia's leader on one side, you know King, and uh, and Putin, Putin on the yeah. other, and as as goal after goal went in for the Russians who were full of energy and full of beans, quite curiously oh, yes. at that tournament, <laughs> uh, you know he was sort of shrugging his hands and trying to. Uh, you know, placate these these tyrannical leaders. And um, FIFA, you know, are a morally corrupt organization. We've known that for years and years. So this is not a surprise whatsoever. Mm. They haven't taken stronger action. Uh, the statement says, FIFA will continue its ongoing dialogue to determine any additional measures or sanctions, including a potential expulsion from competitions that shall be applied in the near future should the situation not be improving rapidly. I'm not sure what news mm. sources they're paying attention to, but it doesn't look like the situation is improving anytime soon. Yeah. So, you know, I I just can't see a situation where they wouldn't be forced into into stronger action by the by the pressure. So, so to come out with this limp um, statement that doesn't um, you know really do anything tangible to to strip. Uh, Russia of its prestige in international football, they could still end up with the World Cup at the end yeah. of the year. Um, it, it it does leave a sour taste, and you know if FIFA's uh, policy on human rights means anything, I think they have to they have to expel Russia from not only the World Cup qualifying but from FIFA. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that this isn't just going to end after this World Cup qualification campaign. It's going to seep her into the UEFA Nations League, into qualification for the Euros in 2024. It's going to keep going as long as. There's tension in Eastern Europe at the moment. Um, as mentioned, Russia... And not uh, only tension, yeah. but outright Out war, warfare war, and Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and this, 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 will get, this will get worse. You know, there's, there's no sugarcoating that. Yeah. And it's it's hard to kind of get your head around and, and confront it, but that's what's happening right now is an invasion. I don't think it's particularly, particularly controversial mm. to say that. Yeah. Um, you know, even, if, even, even if... Even if uh, Putin likes to call it a special military operation, we all know what that's code for. So, I, I just uh, I I can't really uh, come up with a defence for FIFA here, and I I don't care to. 
Um, what's been heartening in the world of football has been the response of not only some uh, Ukrainian players, but also even some Russian athletes around the world who've come out with anti-war statements. Uh, there's been a lot of crowd support for the Ukrainian players, uh, in particular at the Benfica game the other day, mm-hmm. uh, where as soon as Yuremchuk was substituted on, uh, the crowd gave him a standing ovation and started waving flags and so forth. Very emotional. Scene. Similar so, with uh, Ruslan Malinovsky scoring on yeah. Friday as well. Um, and An unfailing match shirt. shirt. Yep. Um, and obviously we know with West Ham as well, Andre Yamalenko has been, you know, he's taken some pa- uh, well, obviously indefinite leave from the club mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. He's got family still in the Ukraine right now. Um, but looking ahead, Josh, at the moment, well, the Russian Football Union will be playing Poland's, at least it's scheduled at the moment, on the 24th of March. And the winner of that game will then host Sweden or the Czech Republic. Um, and Ukraine, on the other hand, they actually have a World Cup qualifier of their own against Scotland, um, in Scotland as well. So that will also be a bit of an interesting scenario to see how this all plays out in the coming weeks. Because if FIFA do take action, look at this now from a logistics standpoint, because... Obviously, with the draw and everything, you know, they ranked everyone else based off where they finished in their group, second-place finishes, and Russia had the fourth-best second-place finish. I don't know if it's as easy as going, all right, Russia sits out, you know, and you put Slovakia and you finish third in the group. You'd almost have to then rework the entire standings and push everyone up because Slovakia had less points than Sweden, Wales, and Turkey. And also, I think as well, they had a worse goal difference then as well, yeah, they had a worse goal difference than Poland. So they'd be the third worst ranked team. So it would push everyone up. He'd almost be forced into a redraw. Mm-hmm. So there's other logistics that have to be taken into account with this whole thing. So it's going to be a very interesting situation to see how FIFA handle this. I don't know how much say with this in terms of the draw and whether this will also affect UEFA, but I can imagine it will as well. It's also going to affect UEFA beyond the World Cup too. So there's a lot of things still to play out. I real watch this space. And I, I believe by the time we come back next Monday, I wouldn't be surprised if this situation has evolved further. Yeah, I think the simplest thing to do for uh, FIFA would be to expel the now Russian football union mm. uh, from the competition entirely and just progress Poland straight to the, the final yeah. against either Sweden or uh, the Czech Republic. Mm. I think that is the most sensible route to take. Um, and it doesn't guarantee Poland a place at the World Cup no. either. Um, but the just the thought of having Russia competing at a World Cup while this has been going on at the end of the year, we're in Qatar, no less. <laughs> it, w- it would just be such a, a clear indication of where the sport's moral compass is mm. at the moment. And let's not forget, you know, UEFA aren't immune from criticism either when you look at, yes, um, you know, they've moved the Champions League final away yeah. from St. Petersburg, but they're still accepting 40 million euros a year in sponsorship from the Russian gas provider Gazprom. Mm. So it, it's it, these little symbolic actions have been taken, but when it actually hurts the bottom line or whether it actually puts this organisation in a position where they have to take a serious moral stand, you can see they, they shrink from it. It's, mm. it's spineless, and it, it, it honestly, it disgusts me. Well, the other bit of action that has been taken has been uh, Roman Abramovich has, I guess, stood down from day-to-day operations of Chelsea. He's still the owner of the club. He's passed it on to the Chelsea Trust. Um, it's not, I, I think, like as much as it is a big move, it really isn't. Like when we look at this in, a, in another way, he's still in control of Chelsea. I don't think much has really changed in that sense other than the fact that he just doesn't have the day-to-day operations control the team, but he still pumps the money into the club. 
It reminds me of that scene in The Simpsons where Mr. Burns explains that the head of the power plant is actually Canary M. Burns yes. and he can't be legally <laughs> prosecuted. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's basically what it Literally. is. Um, you know, Roman Abramovich, um, you know, has a pretty shady past. Um, you know, it's the way his wealth was gathered. I don't think we need to go into a history lesson here. Mm. But he's also stepped away from the club for a long time in terms of managing the day-to-day yeah. operations. Yes, he's still ostensibly the man in charge, but I don't think it's a big deal considering that um, uh, that Petr Cech uh, was, was managing a lot of the stuff at the club already and making most of the uh, football decisions. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't see it as uh, particularly game-changing for Chelsea. The question is whether Abramovich will continue to be able to pl- uh, plough money into the team because you saw with Chelsea's transfer spend over the last few years, they've been insulated against the, the pandemic because Abramovich was able to just spend and spend and spend. Uh, and they were also able to recoup a lot of money through player transfers and this massive loan network that they mm. have as well. Uh, so they were able to get around, uh, I guess, some of the financial Finance fair play, fair play yeah. um, obstacles that way. Um, so I'm, uh, I, I don't think it'll, it'll make a huge difference to them unless... The, the the supply line is is cut off as a result of this, and I'm not sure that's that's clear. And I'm not sure that Chelsea would really suffer at this point because you know football has certainly moved on from the pandemic, uh, and it got them through that difficult period. Um, but where the club is at financially now, I'm not sure if they need the owner backing anymore. I think they've they've already gone ahead of the curve with the, the transfers where no one else was spending. They, they mm. went out and spent huge on, on Kai Havertz, for example. Yeah. And also, you know, spending $97.5 million on Romelu Lukaku as well, which has presented yeah. all sorts of problems. Since well, I really meant the summer well. before. Yeah, when they yeah, when they went big. Well, that know, was after the I transfer. I mean, Timo there. Werner as well. You yeah. can argue that that wasn't a particularly good use well, of that money. but Lukaku was the only signing they made as well mm. this summer. But you look back prior to that summer as well. You mentioned last season they had the transfer ban as well. That was the famous year where they brought in... I guess all the youngsters, they got opportunities. Guys like Reese James and Fakaya Tamori, uh, Mason Mount, all those players as well, really got a lot of opportunities. Um, but it is going to be a real watch this space, what happens in Russia over the next little bit to see, I guess, what happens with FIFA and how this impacts as well with, you know, the club competitions as well, about these teams performing and playing in some of Euro- in Europe's, uh, you know, domestic competitions, the Champions League, Europa League, Conference League, Well, you've got the coach themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tuchel even says that it will change nothing in the day-to-day yeah. running of the club because um, the director whose name I was searching for before, Marina uh, Gronovskaya, uh, and Petr Cech are responsible for the, the decision-making. Yeah. Um, so it's just the finance stuff. Abramovich, know. until this weekend, retained final sign-off on big decisions, including the future of the head coaches and player transfers. Uh, but, you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily think this is a bad thing for Abramovich to move further away from the decision-making because he's meddling in the past when he first took over mm. and he was very hands-on. Um, sacking coaches left, right, and centre, and signing, insisting on signing players like Shevchenko and Torres, didn't leave Chelsea in a good mm, position. So absolutely. I, I don't, I don't really think it, it penalises Chelsea. The only thing that will is if um, Abramovich ends up getting his assets seized uh, in the UK, which is a live possibility. But considering yeah. he's, I think, technically a citizen of Portugal now, they might be, that might be difficult to Wouldn't legally accomplish. 
Um, let's move on now, Josh. Let's go back on to start talking about some of the stuff on the field. We mentioned Chelsea. We'll, we'll, it's a perfect segue to talk about this morning's game in the Carabao Cup final. Uh, they fell to Liverpool 11-10 on penalties after a goalless draw in, I think they went 120, or was it? Is it the famous 90 in penalties with the Carabao Cup? I always get confused because it seems like it's always changing over in England at the moment. But it was Liverpool who did come up trumps. Um, they did actually go, yes. They it, did was, go, it was the yeah. full extra time. Yeah, they went the full extra time. Uh, one penalty missed, and uh, it was by the name of Kepa Arizibaliga, who sprayed, obviously was unlucky not to score his penalty. Um, you know, he was subbed on for Eduard Mendy in the game as well. Um, but Liverpool come up trumps. It's a game that really was a, a matter of inches, a few inches this way, a few inches that way, and Chelsea could have come up trumps. But Liverpool continue their good run. They're getting it done in the league right now. They've closed the gap on Manchester City at the moment. We saw the controversy with Manchester City on the weekend with the handball and everything like that, which went against Liverpool in the title race. But Liverpool get a bit of sh- a new shiny bit of silverware to add to their cabinet uh, this season. And they're, that hopefully, in their sake, be looking to add to that as the season progresses. The only thing I could think as I watched this morning was that... <laughs> There must be a certain former Chelsea manager by the name of Maurizio Sarri sitting <laughs> somewhere and throwing his head back and laughing. I don't think he was throwing his head back and laughing too much after that, Josh, because his side lost well, in the 95th minute. Perhaps the notification went off in his Maybe phone. Maybe when he went out. He's got fault mob notifications still had on. Had his cigarette his, break when they yeah, were warming up exactly. and everything. Yeah. And, and he, he, looked at, he looked at his phone and just thought, vindication. Yeah. Vindication. Because... Yeah. If you think back to when he tried to sub off Kepa, Kepa in that yeah. famous, it was a Carabao Cup final. It was, fact. yeah, it was. Uh, and Kepa refused to be substituted. Oh, in and the words, in the words of a certain uh, pundit here in Australian football, when you told to come off, you come off. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I thought you were going Stephen A. With no, I no, 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 no. I to tell you a, a certain pundit from the uh, from the Apple Isle, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I totally agree with him. Um, and, uh, you know, Maurizio Sarri's Chelsea reign seemed to spiral into turmoil from there. That was the moment where it, it all went changed. south yeah. for him. So, uh, yeah, I, I I think he was he was vindicated by, by this penalty shootout. Of course, you know, a goalkeeper taking a penalty is always yeah. an extreme situation. Uh, but uh, the, the Irish youngster, Quiven Kelleher, Plotting got the, the start des- as well, yeah. Decisive penalty. And then the thing I liked from this game was uh, there's actually crowd footage yeah. uh, of the uh, Liverpool fans celebrating. And you can just see on the left-hand side of the frame, a stray ball just ends up in the crowd. <laughs> and it's Kepa's penalty. Because obviously, you know, it, yeah. it was so far off target. It ended up in basically in Rosette. And uh, there was another uh, photo that followed on an Instagram account uh, which was somebody's dad was at the game, managed to catch the ball and yep. kept it as oh, a souvenir. Great. That's great. So the last kick of the game, the kick that ultimately won Liverpool, the Carabao Cup, and you've got a, a memento. Has there been a goalkeeper with a worse run since signing for Chelsea than Kepa Arizabalaga? Arizabalaga. I'm the one wearing the Spain jersey. Balaga. Well, let's just keep it simple. Kepa. Has there been a worse run? Because he got signed for over 71 million at the time, and it was an eye-watering fee. 
when you consider at that time, it's not like he was the best goalkeeper in Spain at that point, and Chelsea went nuts to to get that deal done to replace Thibaut Courtois, and now he finds himself as the number two. Everything that you can think of that could go wrong has gone wrong, and this is just another chapter in what has been a real sorry time in London for himself. Well, it's interesting that uh, Tuchel has pursued the two goalkeeper, one in the cup kind of policy mm. at Chelsea. It's a very continental thing. It's not so common in the Premier League. Um, I guess it's becoming more common with the amount of European managers uh, yeah. that actually operate in the league. But, um, you know, having that hard and fast policy and, and sticking with them all the way to the cup final, I mean, it's something that I guess Liverpool yeah. have done as well. Uh, but he brought Kepper on like Tim Krulspeck from the 2014 World Cup for penalties. <laughs> he brought him on the 120th minute. That is, we, we were talking about penalty shootouts the other week about where do you put, where do you rank these, your best yeah, penalty but, takers. Yeah, this is, this the is a risky one. Because uh, I think he played earlier in the Carabao Cup he for, did, yeah. for Chelsea. And then Tuchel ended up starting Mendy in the final and then mm. going back on it before the shootout, as you say, which is totally puzzling. Mm. It's it, it was strange because every time I think, as we mentioned, you think back to that 2014 World Cup when Jasper Sillison got subbed off and he brought... Um, was uh, Louis van Gaal brought Tim Krul on for the penalties and Tim Krul ended up being the hero in that game against Costa Rica. But Kepa got brought on and there's always the famous rule when it comes to making a sub before a penalty shootout. And we remember it from the Euro final. You don't make the subs too close to the penalty shootout mm. and make them take a penalty because we've seen how many times as a player who has barely had a pass, had a shot, completely fluff their lines when it comes to taking a penalty. I think back to Simone Zaza mm. against Germany, the famous stutter step. Um, the that thre- wasn't a stutter step. That was... It was... High knees. It was, yeah, it was like... He was, was, warm- was still warming up, you know. He was doing his warm-up <laughs> on the way to take the penalty. Um, and you think back to, you know, at, at the Euros final, players like Jaden Sancho and Marcus Rashford both missing their chances as well. So I wonder if it's the same with goalkeepers because he had one sub left. And instead of bringing on maybe a little bit early, he could have brought on Sal Niguez or Ruben Loftus-Cheek or Callum Hudson-Odoi. He decides to turn to Kepa. Mm. And that's such a bold move because it's not like Eduard Mendy's a bad goalkeeper. This is arguably the best goal, well, behind Allison, probably the second best goalkeeper in the Prem. Maybe uh, maybe he made a promise to Kepa that if it got to the shootout that uh, he could try and redeem himself. Still, though... Still, though, like in this situation, it's a bit of silver on the line. Well, like, you never really expected yeah. um, Mendy to take one either. So, you know, he wasn't brought on to take a penalty. It just got that happened, far. Yeah. It just it happened to go 11 yeah. for 11 or 10 for 10, and then it got to the 11th player, I should say. Oh, well, I'd love to see if, what would have happened if Eduard Mendy took the penalty instead. Look, we don't know. I don't know if there's any any footage out there, if anyone's got some footage of Eduard but Mendy taking a penalty. But he's not a goalkeeper from penalties in terms Usually, of saving Yeah, them. saving them, He's got yeah. a great reach. Yeah. Like, I, I wouldn't have thought there was any great advantage to subbing mm. Kepper on, which is very strange. But, um, you know, it turned out neither goalkeeper was able to save one in the yeah. end. So um, at Chelsea, they, they stayed in it. You know, uh, I, I think Liverpool are a much better team than them, and it showed. Uh, it's interesting to see Lukaku on the out at the moment. Um, you know, he came off the bench in this one, but they've continued to start Havertz as the false nine. I, I'm struggling to see where Lukaku fits back into their Chelsea team, mm. given where, you know, the the politics are at in that side. You know, Tuchel saying, oh, it's the same system. You know, he just has to do more, essentially. Um, and I wonder whether... He's falling into the same trap as a manager as so many others have, mm. thinking Lukaku is this big uh, back-to-goal target man. 
uh, whereas Havertz is much more suited to play that linking role with, yeah. his, uh, with the balls to his feet. And I've, I've always felt that some of Lukaku's best football has come either in a strike pairing or even on occasion when he's been played out, wide. out of position yeah. on the right-hand side. He, he loves to make that run out to the right and then cut in. Mm. And he can do it at, at speed. Um, yeah. And he's a hard player to stop when he picks up speed. And when he's running into space as well, running at defenders. But managers think, oh, I've signed this striker. It'd be stupid to play him as a winger. But mm. it's secretly his best position. And uh, I'm not sure if managers quite have, have figured that out or if in, even if Lukaku has figured that out. But that's that's what I observe from him. And that's why I think he's better in a strike pairing because he's got more um, option to play facing goal and he's got more option to, to drift out yeah. into spaces out wide where he can attack defenders in space. All I'm saying is we saw him under content, the three five two Josh, as you mentioned, in a strike partnership. We saw it for two seasons and it worked. And he was play, he was arguably probably behind Erlen Haaland, the best number nine in the world. At but Tuchel's won a Champions League with this system. He's not changing know, it. But it's it's like so. Why did you sign him then? You know, because if you know he's not going to fit into your system, then why did you why did you sign him? Was that the last captain's call from Abramovich before he potentially? Who who knows? Maybe it came from above him. I know. Look, there's been a lot of criticism. I think in some aspects, fair with Lukaku's off-field behaviour, with taking interviews and literally saying that he wants to leave and wants to go back to Inter and never wanted to leave. And he's kind of burnt the Inter bridge as well because he left when, you know, Inter would have probably thought he could have just turned his back and said, I'm not leaving. I don't, I, no matter what, as much well, as the final situation. He had to leave with their financials. He did, but, you know, Inter fans don't see it that way. No. Because they probably think, well, he could have still turned down the, you know, really just played hardball and said, I'm not signing a contract to Chelsea and said, stuff it. You could sell somebody else. It's hard when the club leadership is telling you this is a good deal, you should go, you know. But they could have easily sold Lautaro Martinez for that same money. And you've seen how Lautaro Martinez has performed this season. He has had a shocking season. And Barca at the time, we know Barca's had their financial problems. There was a time where Barca were offering some ridiculous cash for Lautaro Martinez, similar to that Romelu Lukaku money. You'd have to think that, I think if Inter had their time again, maybe they would have looked to have maybe sold Martinez, kept Lukaku. I know that's actually worked out okay for Inter this season. Dzeko, despite his age, he's had a pretty good season. Uh, Joaquin Correa has been a good signing for them. But for Chelsea, I just don't think this move is going to work unless they change system. Or unless, as you said, Josh, they try and utilize him as a forward, like playing him behind as a winger. Um, you know, taking up one of those positions. But realistically, is he going to displace Mason Mount? Is he going to displace Christian Pulisic right now from that starting 11? I just don't see it. I see that Tuchel wants those speedy sort of smaller guys in behind. He wants to go a bit smaller. And Kai Havertz works as the false nine for it. He won them a Champions League last year. So I just don't see it changing. And to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see Lukaku in a Chelsea jersey next season. But it's a matter of who the hell is going to pay him. Because everyone's going after Mbappe. Everyone's going after um, Erling Haaland at the moment. He's kind of been forgotten as like the third option right now. And we know his volatility. Who's going to sign him in, in the Premier League? Who's going to be, who's genuinely needs him? Is he going to fit in a, in a Guardiola system? Absolutely not. Because, you know, he's going to have to pass the ball. He's going to have to play as a false nine unless you play him out wide. Is he going to fit in the Manchester United system? No, he won't fit in the Manchester United system. It seems like it's either, well, Tuchel makes it work somehow with him as a winger, or he might be might be trying to get shipped back to Italy, but the only team that can afford him is Juventus, and they've just signed Dusan Vlaovic. So, or, 
unless big brain stuff here. There's a certain team that is managed by his former manager by the name of Tottenham Hotspur go, hey, look, you know what? We might sell Harry Kane. We might get the cogs turning. We use the Harry Kane money to ship him off. And I, don't, then... I don't think Kane's but going I don't, anywhere yeah, I don't think Kane's I mean, leaving. after the performance against City. You know, Unless he decides, like, decides, look, I... Well, I mean, he's yeah. still got a number of years to go on his contract. What is it? Three, two or three more years after this I'll season. Check that. So you know he signed a six-year contract. With yeah. His brother is his agent, so he doesn't have a lot of negotiating power. And we've already seen that play out. Uh, you know, I'd be surprised to see it happen again. Um, you know, and he's also not the kind of player who can really pull off the uh, want-away superstar shtick. Mm. You know, because he's he's the captain and he's Harry Kane, <laughs> yeah. he's England captain. His entire persona is built around him being like yeah. a solid stand-up Three guy. Three years left on his contract, by the way. Yeah. So no, sorry, two. Two, two more years. years left on his Still, yeah. he doesn't have a, until not this summer, uh, not this northern so, summer, but next yeah. northern summer. Uh, he, he doesn't have a lot of leverage. So I'd be surprised to see him leave uh, this coming off season. Yeah. And yeah, Lukaku doesn't have that many options. He's backed himself into a corner a little bit. Um, you know, maybe maybe he just have to try and outlast Tuchel in the in in the role, which is going to be going to be tough because I don't see a a better manager suddenly emerging yeah. for Chelsea. Let's take a short break here, Josh, and we come back a little bit of Serie A, a bit of La Liga, a bit going on all around Europe. We'll go into all of that, and also, well. We're going to talk about a certain man that debuted last week and didn't play this morning. We didn't debut last week. He scored last week. It took the Australian football uh, diaspora by absolute storm. We're going to touch on that a little bit because I think that after this morning, maybe we've heard things have changed maybe just a little bit. It's been very quiet on the the Bird app recently, Mm. Josh. It's very different to what it was eight days ago. Very, very quiet from a few accounts. But anyways, we'll be back in just a little bit. Sometimes I feel, I don't know, I don't know. Buona giornata, buona serata, buona giornata. There's not really time to relax and take an espresso for Juventus. <laughs> you don't have to get a bad You don't have to get a bad Attaccare! Welcome back to the Euro Show here on FNR Football Nation Radio. Nick Dubano and Josh Parrish taking you right through to 7 p.m. Listening on the podcast, make sure you leave us a like, a review, subscribe to the FNR Football Nation Radio platform. Let us know what you'd like to hear on the podcast next Monday. We always love a bit of fan interaction. Even if you're listening in on the Twitch, drop us a comment as well. Josh, it's time to dive into the world's best league. No, Ante Jukic, this is not high and L hour. We're talking a bit of culture, Serie A football. And as always, it seems like the title race continues to throw up another spanner. But it literally does. It, it finds a new way mm. to baffle every single week. And this weekend, again, it was insane. And it kicked off on Saturday morning. 4am, left a lot of Milan fans around the world absolutely fuming, including myself. I woke up on Saturday morning and Josh, not going to lie, when I watched back the replay and I saw that handball, that blatant handball that was missed, I threw my phone like I did before the show, but this time it didn't actually land on a cabinet. Um, Milan won, Udinese won, Rafael Leal opened the scoring, and then Destiny um, Destiny Udogi. Now, if you haven't seen the goal, a great ball into the area from Roberto Pereira. Shout out to Roberto Pereira. Fantastic cameo off the bench. Really changed the game. But 
he the ball comes in front of him and he literally shovels the ball in with his hand. Uh, not well. Let's let's not gloss over the amazing overhead kick to centre yes, the ball before it, that. Look, it was a fantastic cross, but he shoveled the ball in with his hand, Josh. That was a he punched it in. I'm just watching the footage back, and I mean, there's a defender in front of him. It just sort of hits him. He tries to get his arm out of the way, but he does not succeed. And it goes to VAR. They check it and just give him the all clear. So this is another game. Now, I don't want to sound like a Salty Milan fan, but yes, I am going to sound like a Salty Milan fan. This is now twice this season. Milan have had some real bad calls go against them in, mm-hmm. in big games. We saw the Spezia game a few weeks ago when it was 1-1 and Junior Messia scores the goal, but they decided not to pay advantage for the foul. No, Rebic, Messia scored the goal. Rebic was the one who bloody grabbed the ref's face afterwards. But there was the foul in the lead up. They didn't pay the advantage and Messias would have gone and won the game. They go back, take the free kick. They fluff it. Spezia go back up the other way, score, win the game. Milan up in this game, they lose another, they drop another two points as a result of a bad performance from the referee. Now, Milan did not play well in this game. Let's not gloss over the fact that they were just not up for it. And Udinese have constantly been Milan's Achilles heel for a very long time. That's the game that every Milan fan, it's circled on the calendar like, God help us, this is going to be a drab. (laughs) And we're probably going to drop at least two points in this game. And sure as hell they did. They did earlier in the season as well. So it then opened the door for Inter later that day. They were playing straight afterwards in Genoa against, against, yes, Genoa, not Sampdoria. And despite having 20 shots on goal and absolutely peppering the Genoa goal, Nil-nil. Genoa held firm. They've been on a good run as of late under their new boss. And don't you mean David Zrilich's Genoa? Well, yeah, technically. I mean, as the assistant as, as the assistant coach. But, you know, they had plenty of chances against Genoa. I've got to give credit to Genoa and especially to their new manager, Alex Blessing, who has really changed things over the past little bit since taking over from Andrei Shevchenko. But, my God. Inter- 21 shots, four on target. That's yeah. just... That's just- Only an XG of 1.45, and from seven shots, Genoa almost had half of that. So that goes to show Genoa were actually creating, arguably, for the volume of chances, almost Mm. better chances on goal. So Inter's poor attack continues after the last little bit. Despite having a game in hand, they remain two points behind Milan. Opens up the door for Napoli this morning against Lazio, and my God, this game had it all. Insigne opens the scoring. Pedro with an absolute belter. To equalise, like if you haven't seen this goal, go back and it check is, it. It is incredible. Let's yeah. let, let's let's describe yeah, let's, it for let, let's get it for up. the audience. So this is this was also Pedro's hundredth career goal. So to talk about it, what a way to bring and up this your is this is the, well. the the ex Barcelona winger Pedro of yeah. the famous twenty eleven team that won all before. So it. already a fantastic save in the lead up for that one. But sorry, this is actually the, the, the highlight beforehand. Highlight it, was, Pedro. it was Pedro. He tested the yeah. goalkeeper before that. So Luis that. Alberto puts the ball into the area. Great set piece. It's cleared away. Pedro is just waiting on the edge of the area. Just on the top of the D. Yeah. And the ball is coming at him from such a a height. Like it's headed clear and it doesn't actually drop for him that nicely. It's almost thigh height when he uh, when he meets it and he manages to get over the ball somehow somehow maneuver it i mean he's a small guy pedro yeah. he doesn't have height on his side but he manages to just catch it perfectly on the flush on the volley of his left foot yeah. his weaker left foot and I mean, it would have been one of the all-time great saves if David Ospina had been able to beat that around <laughs> you the, almost did. the post. He, he got a good hand to it, but it was just too powerful and just hit the bottom of his yeah. wrist. And 
Um, and, but, you know, just the, the speed of the ball, the volume, like the velocity of the hit was, was off the charts. Yeah, and that was in the 88th minute. So Lazio thought they had salvaged a point, and I think all Milan and Inter fans breathed a sigh of relief, thinking that, okay... Everyone's dropped the same position. amount of points. We're like for the second straight week, everything's gone, you know, possibly wrong. But got to give it to Elmas. What a performance off the bench. He gets the ball in transition. He breaks forward. He has the space, plays it out wide. Um, I believe that was Lorenzo Insigne that yes. picks up the ball on the left-hand side. So he a goal and an off. assist for the Toronto yeah. FC bound. Yes. So as, as you can see, Insigne gets on the left-hand side. He lays it off perfectly to Fabio Ruiz. Again, just trailing on the edge of the area. And this is what Fabio Ruiz does so well. If you haven't watched Fabio Ruiz play, I just just get his highlights up. Just watch this man play football at the next possible opportunity. He scores goals like this all the time. Just trails patiently. Ball falls to him perfectly. Hits it left foot from outside the box. Perfectly placed into the bottom left-hand corner. He... he- cuts across the ball yeah. in a really exaggerated motion. Like, Fabian Ruiz is this elegant player. He's quite tall. He's got legs that seem to just go mm. on forever. They're so spindly and long. Um, but he's got such uh, presence and such um, composure yeah. in everything that he does, even moving at high speed or high speed for him. He's not the speediest player. Yeah. Um, but trailing the break, as you say, he sort of emerges on the footage off screen. <laughs> yeah. Like he just, uh, uh, Insignia lays the ball into space. space. And, and he, yeah. he just, you think he's passed it to no one. You think, what have you done, Lorenzo? Mm. And suddenly Ruiz appears from off screen. And there are two players trying to block the pass. One defender flying with a slide in front of him with yeah. a leg almost waist height. Another one trying to block the angle. And he just curls it around both of them and perfectly into the bottom corner, just grazes the inside of the the left-hand post on its way in. And immediately the shirt comes off. You know, the entire bench is run down, uh, you know, down at uh, San Paolo. They've got this big athletics track around the pitch. So it's a long way to get to the fans. Um, He's got a bandage on his head. Yeah, at the the Olympico. Uh, Sorry, at the Olympico, I should say. Strakosha, the goalkeeper, was left with absolutely no chance as well. You, You don't hit those better. And usually, how many times we've seen when a player lines up a long range effort like that, and they get their bo- they keep their body up high, and they just sky it. Like we see it all the time. We've seen it in Sunday League when the, the eyes light up with someone on a layoff. They're like, come on, lay it off, lay it off, and they just they just smack it, rosy kind yep. of stuff, right? That that's that's a particular skill to hit that on the run as well. You know that. And did it to that position as well. Most is, most players would try and put their foot through the yeah, ball. Yeah, and would just try and go for power. But that and, was and sometimes if you well. if you hit it perfectly, you know, it's it's one of, it's the most spectacular Absolutely, goal you've ever seen. But yeah. he controls it so beautifully. So I mean, it, it was just an amazing finish. Um, yeah. do, do you think Napoli deserved to win this game? It was a pretty tight, one. pretty tight game. I mean, it was a game of moments, and if you took them, that was going to be the difference. And look, Napoli did. They have done this for quite some time, but right now they're timing their run really well. Just like Milan, they're out of Europe. They got bundled out of the Europa League by Barcelona on Friday. So their last 11 games, they go in with less distractions than, say, than say Inter do at the moment. And same with Juventus, who have actually brought the gap to only back to only seven points. They're unbeaten in the league won. since December. Yeah. So Napoli is starting to get a bit of a head of steam, but there's a big game to come next week, which probably will decide... I wouldn't say will decide the title race because every week when you think the title race is ebbing in one way, there's just another complete, you know, baffling result that will go 
Um, it just unexpectedly wrong for any of the contenders. But Napoli hosts Milan next Monday morning in Naples. They met in January. Napoli won 1-0 in Milan. So right now they have the head-to-head over the Rossoneri, hence why not even with the goal difference, but they've in the, the way Serie A works is it's head-to-head if you finish on uh, on points. So this is a big game because if Napoli win or just get a draw in this game, they maintain the head-to-head if they end up level at the end of the season, which is a real possibility right now. But Napoli have got quite a very got quite a handy run after that, you know, Hellas Verona, Udinese. But then it gets a bit hard when they play against Atalanta, Fiorentina, and Roma. But if you compare their run home, their last four games compared to Milan's, it's perfect for Napoli. Sassuolo, Torino, Genoa, Spezia. While Milan, on the other hand, their last four games: Fiorentina, Hellas Verona, Atalanta. Sassuolo on the road to finish the season. Mm. They are four prickly games. Mind you, before that fourth game against Fiorentina, they play Lazio on the road. So Milan right now, they can't afford to slip up anymore. They need to beat Napoli on Monday morning. I implore anyone, if you're getting up early on Monday morning, 6.45, watch this game. It's going to be great. When they met at the... um, at uh, in Naples last season, it was arguably the game of the season. Three-one win for Milan. Can't wait for this game. So, just make sure you're glued to your screens on Monday morning. What gives you any confidence as a Milan fan after the performance against Udinese that you're going to pull off a result? Milan have this away tenden- <laughs> at San Paolo. Milan have this tendency to play to their opponents. So if they're playing a worse team, the opponents. This has been their problem for so long. Is that when they play teams they should beat, they tend to like drop. That team that play to mm. the opponents. So we've seen it against Salernitana and against Udinese. Their best performances come against the best against teams. Against the better teams. And when okay. they played Napoli last time again, they were they were the better team in that game and they just could not finish. There was a they scored in the last minute to equalize, but it was again a bad decision from the referee when it should have been an equalizer for the goal that they didn't pay. Um, that went against them. So this is going to be, again, a really intriguing watch uh, next Monday because Milan don't have a bad record against Napoli and Naples. They've, before last season, they hadn't won there too often, but they've actually taken points in their last two games there. So I think that that gives them some, you know, sort of, I guess, a bit of an extra boost. But Milan's away record this season's actually been really good as well this season. So I think this is going to be a cracking contest for that reason in particular. They may have Zlatan Ibrahimovic back. I don't think that's really going to change a lot of things because Olivier Giroud's been in some good form. But I think the one thing that worries me about, a Milan, about Milan right now is the over-reliance on Rafael Leal right now. It seems like everything's going through him. Um, they've ditched Alexis Salamakers from the starting 11 and gone to Junior Messias, which I don't agree with. Um, you know, Brahim Diaz he plays good one game, but he's struggling to back it up right now. I still think he's suffering from long COVID. I don't think he's completely over it. Okay. And I think that there's some, there's just some concerns in that area. So I, I think that, look, this week's going to be a real interesting one to see how Milan handle it because in midweek they have a derby in the cup against Inter. And they said they're going to rotate the squad, but it's a derby after all. It's, yeah. it's a two-legged affair. It won't go to extra time, but still, that's always a physical game. That's so always... Coppa Italia semi-final this Wednesday morning, yes. first leg. And then Monday morning against Napoli. So it's a big week. It's and a big, It's a tough turnaround. It is. And look, as well, the, the good thing is Inter as well have to go through it. They're going to have to back it up. They've been playing games with short turnarounds too with the Champions League. It's catching up with Inter. Like, if it's catching up with anyone, it really is with them. So, right I was going to ask. I mean, that disappointing performance out of Genoa. What, what do you put your finger on it? Like, they look tired. 
They, uh, they really look tired. I was surprised to see Alexis Sanchez starting up top ahead yeah. of Martinez or even ahead of Felipe Casado, who was a favourite mm. uh, of Simone Inzaghi's and, uh, at Lazio. Yeah, well, the last four, they haven't scored in their last three games in all competitions. They've got some problems up mm-hmm. top. And looking at the game against Genoa, you know, it's not as if that they had a bad lineup out there either. This is almost a full strength into team bar Milan Skriniar, bar um, as well, not starting with any. Well, they actually, well, bar's not starting Lautaro Martinez. This is as good as the teams you could possibly have. Yeah, it's basically Skriniar just was on the bench. They just decided to go with Dumbledore in this game, and they just completely shut the proverbial. So, and, I mean, do they have much depth beyond the 11? Is that is this well, the problem for Inter that they're going to run into? Midfield depth has been their problem all season. We saw how well Vidal played in the Champions League, but in the league, his performances this season haven't been great. Up top, I think that... I, I'm I mean, Chalanolu and Barella were both substituted in this yeah. one. Vecino and, and Vidal being quite inferior. Yeah, and Vecino... Mate, he spent all of last season literally, you know, exiled from the Inter team. He hasn't played a lot of football. Um, you know, Casado, as much as he's a handy striker, he's not necessarily the Inter calibre. He's a good depth striker, but he's not going to win you a game of football. Um, you know, without Joaquin Correa as well, that's a big loss. You know, Joaquin Correa, for me, should be starting for Inter alongside Jekyll at the moment. I don't know if Lautaro Martinez is the answer long term. I honestly think they're going to sell him in the off season because I think that there's part of it that maybe look they're still in a tough financial position, so they might have to. But you know, look, they're still with that Robin Gosens too. But it's not an excuse. I genuinely think this team is tired, and similar to Conte, they're finding struggles in terms of rota- rotating the squad. I think that just the constant games is starting to catch up with them. And Josh, this is not a young team. No. This is one thing we've, we we haven't even mentioned. This is an old team. Yeah, they've got a lot of guys over thirty. So it's starting to catch up. The constant short turnarounds. You know, early in the season, Serie A they're playing every three days. I mean, Stan's army League out there. Too. If you look at the yeah. likes of Vidal and, and Sanchez and Perisic and Jeco, even they've got to back know, up. Oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure on players who aren't. Ain't what they used to be. So it's kind of amazing that they've made it this far and they're still yeah. one of the leading title contenders, you know, after 26, 27 games. But I wouldn't be ruling them out just yet. Well, they've I, got a game I, in hand. Yes, and I think they'll get bundled out in the Champions League. I don't see them arresting that two-goal mm-hmm. disadvantage at Anfield. I think they're done there. I think that, you know, they. I wouldn't even be surprised if in that game they kind of go, look, you know what? We might try and go for it in the first half. You know, might try and leave themselves. They'll probably leave themselves a bit open. I still don't see them beating Liverpool. Um, I just don't see them coming back from here. And I think being out of Europe and maybe even out of the Coppa Italia for them, because I think similar to Milan, they'll be prioritizing the league in this instance. I don't think that as much as is a derby, I think for them, they'll want to win the league. And I wouldn't be surprised if they also rotate in that game. So maybe that might work in their favour. If Milan, Inter and Napoli are all out of, the, out of Europe by the, state, by the time we get to a couple of weeks' time, this title race is going to really go up a notch mm. because we're going to have three teams all focusing on the same prize because even though we mentioned the Coppa, the second leg is until the end of April. There is a lot of time in between then for these teams to focus solely on the league. So, you know what, as much as, you know, you don't want to say it's a biscotto, but if Inter wants to sort of throw in the towel in the second leg against Liverpool, you don't really blame them. Because in reality, you know, the team that probably has more to prove in the Champions League is Juventus. They're probably not going to make the, the grounds in the league right now, despite it's only back to seven points. But I think for Inter right now, winning the league is more important and it's, and it's more realistic. 
I want to talk about Spain, Nick. Yeah, I think bef- we should before we you got you, you've got you've got a before another another we get to that. another rant. But no, it's not a rant. It's just a, a quick thing that we touched that was dominating. Okay, the victory lap week. then. <laughs> no, it's it's not even a victory lap. It's just an I told you so. Um, <laughs> is there a big difference? <laughs> okay, all right. I'm going to stop channeling my inner Johnny Warren, but basically. Um, Christian Volpato didn't see a minute this morning against Spezia. I was I said last week straight up that essentially the second that Roma got players back, it was going to work against Christian Volpato. Henrik Mkhitaryan, Nicolas Zaniolo, Stefan El Shadawi, Oldo Shmodov all returned, all saw minutes off the bench against Spezia in their 1-0 win. Now, this is not a knock on Christian Volpato, it's just honesty that we've seen it so many times with young players that when you're in a young you're a young player in a team that has at that point in the season, they're contending for Europe. They're going to put their seasoned mm-hmm. players out there. And Nicolò Zaniolo and co. are seasoned players who uh, have been playing every minute of every game this season. So I worry for Christian Volpato in that sense that minutes are going to be at the premium for the rest of the season. There is going to be opportunities potentially in the Conference League. But again, there are players still ahead of him who probably will get those minutes first. Um, even Eduardo Bove, who also came on with him in that game, came off the bench ahead of him today too. And that game got decided in the 99th minute. So if they were going to bring on an extra attacking player, you would have thought maybe Volpato would have seen minutes. And despite that performance, it's going to be hard for him. I think back, and this was one example I didn't mention last week on TNC, Josh, but Daniel Maldini scored for Milan against Spezia early in the season. And I think a lot of people probably thought, oh, he's going to kick on, he's going to get minutes. He hasn't started a game in Serie A since then. He's barely seen a minute since then. I think that's just one thing that's just when you're playing for a big club and they've got those ambitions and there are players ahead of you in the pecking order, you can play well, you can score one goal, but if you don't take your opportunities from that moment on, you're not going to get many more minutes. So, again, call the Jets, fellas. We'll see if Christian Volpato can get some minutes before the next round of Internet World Cup qualifiers. If that half an hour was enough to justify selection, I'll be absolutely baffled. But again, I hope we can see more more game time for him, but I just don't know if it's going to happen. Just keeping it realistic, guys, this was always going to happen when players were coming back from injuries. So that's all I gotta say on that. Yeah, I mean I mean, did anyone and no one should really have been expecting him to like start consistently no. for the rest of the season just because he scored one goal. No. Absolutely also, not. let's not like completely delight in the fact that Australian young players not no, playing. No, no, I'm no. Not, I'm not delighting <laughs> in it, Josh. I'm just saying because last week we saw so many takes yeah. in regards to, you know, oh, he's scoring goals in Serie A. Again, oh. no, it's a goal. Yeah. He's played, you know, a, this amount of time. We need to pick him based off that period of time. He I mean, there's every, every chance, you know, he goes on like a Serie B loan he next should. season. Next season he should. And if he does play well in Serie B, great, select him. Mm. Far out, as I said, if he keeps playing and he's playing well, then yes, pick him, but he's not. Our saviour complex so, rears its ugly yes, head yet again. Shall we talk about La Liga? Savior. Yes, before we go down into the, the deldrums of Australian football, we go too far down the rabbit hole. So in La Liga, fun weekend again. A lot of sort of different permutations with the title race. Real Madrid extended their gap to six points. 1-0 win over Real Vallecano. Karim Benzema, guess who, of course. Well, they maintained their gap. Yes, fact. they did maintain their gap. They uh, got the win there. Sevilla kept up the pace, back to six points, winning the Seville derby 2-1. Ivan Rakatish and Munir getting on the score sheet. Sergio Canales pulled one back late, but a big win for Sevilla, keeping their sort of gap on top of a gap with Madrid just at an arm's, there, uh, arm's length. They're still in it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard. 
but they're still in with a with a pulse. I mean, one of the greatest sights in football is the Seville derby as well. Yep. Um, you know, at the Ramon Sanchez Pizjuan. Yep. Uh, which is a great stadium, and you know, it's a fierce rivalry. Uh, Sevilla, you know, they they finally. <laughs> Got a result against a big team that they needed, and just the the absolute limbs in the crowd afterwards and, and the roar is, is, yeah. is next level. So oh, winning at home against Betis, honestly, it's it's almost as big as winning the title for yeah. them that game. Well, so, there's there's also one thing to mention on that. That was two v three too. So that's mm. that's a big game. But one thing just about the aesthetic of it, I love a day derby. Mm. Like there's something so pure about a day game and seeing it. It's a bit of a change from the always late kickoff and seeing it during the day and that sort of bright feel. So it's a bit of extra happiness, you know, almost, sort of you know. Saturday, Sunday at the football, yeah. In the afternoon, yeah. It's it's, it's it's wholesome. It feels traditional, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it feels a lot more traditional. And and there's certainly a lot of tradition in that in that match. Um, there's Barcelona beating uh, Athletic Club four nil, yeah, which is a very good result. Uh, Pierre Emerick Aubameyang scoring another goal. Well, Piers Morgan had his say about it, basically saying, oh, look at this. You know, Arteta couldn't get the best out of Aubameyang and look at him over the last three games. Yeah, I mean, you could also say that maybe Aubameyang wasn't as motivated at Arsenal as yeah. he is now. It would be another way to, to, to interpret it. it. Because uh, Arteta's done quite a decent job over the past couple of months. I, I also think that result was somewhat deceptive considering Barcelona added two goals in the 90th and 93rd minutes yep. from De Jong and Depay, the uh, the Dutch duo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't think they were really four goals better than Bilbao, but they're, they're certainly um, improving under Xavi since since they brought in those January signings. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's a long way to go for this, for this group, but... Um, you know, Aubameyang seems on a free to be a, a decent pickup mm. to keep them in uh, basically the top four, which is not any guarantee when you when you see Atletico Madrid's on the same points as they are, albeit with Barcelona having a game in hand and a very informed Villarreal hot yeah, on the coming heels from nowhere really in sixth spot. Unai Emery's Villarreal, yeah. I should say, uh, they're only three points behind Barcelona in the race for the Champions League, um, and you know Real. Betis are no guarantees to say they either on 46 points, but uh, Villarreal's result caught my eye because they thrashed Espanyol 5-1, albeit Espanyol having a terrible season. Yep. But four goals from 19-year-old Jeremy Pino. Yes, I four. mean four, four, he, and, he, yeah. and he gave it the uh, the big Andre Arshavin as well it's after fantastic. afterwards, as as you would. Well, he's just been drafted into the Spain national team as well. He's definitely a, a name to watch mm. over the next few months and seeing how he progresses. Because Jeremy Jesus Pino Santos, remember yeah, the name? Definitely. He's he's he looks like a, a quite a player. He's he's quite small. He's only what five yeah. seven five eight. Um, um, but he's he's very agile and deft and uh, can dink the ball past players very easily and I I, I reckon he's he's a, he's a top prospect and he seems to have uh, a bit of confidence about him as well. Certainly, it's hard not to look confident when you're scoring four yes. goals, but uh, he's he's got a bit of swagger which you always like to see in a, in a young player. He can play kind of up front you know, as kind of false nine type. He can play in as a number ten or on the right wing as well. So yeah. uh, he's he's pretty. Uh, versatile, and we know Luis Enrique likes that in his forward players, and he's also willing to consider players outside of the big two. Yeah, particularly if they don't play for Real Madrid, he's oh. very, very keen not to, very keen to pick them. Though. Well, <laughs> let's hope he can just bloody give some minutes to Luis Alberto and Fabio Ruiz. Well, because, that's the thing; God, they're the two that need some minutes. But man. it's 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 sort of a similar complex, I think, to 
uh, Italy. I mean, they don't tend to pick players who play outside of yeah, their own domestic league. So it's a bit of there's a bit of tunnel vision. Yeah. I guess the Premier League's different because there's mm. some established footballers there who yeah. always get picked. But um, you know, I think they they do need to look more at at Serie A and mm. Luis Alberto and Fabian Ruiz having such great seasons. They're overdue uh, a look-in. But Jeremy Pino uh, certainly turning heads with his performances. And Unai Emery, I mean, proving that he is a good coach. Yeah. Well, he can Widely mocked for his time at Arsenal. Um, I think... I think a lot of that was based around his uh, appearance and mannerisms and not entirely based around the football. And Arteta's taken a long time and been given a lot of rope to turn it around. Yeah. Um, And finally, Arsenal are seeing some of the benefits of that. But I think if they'd been more patient with Emery, I I don't necessarily think they'd be in much of a different position. Well... I mean, Emery completely outcoached Allegri in midweek in the Champions League, and that was a great sign of just how much of a of how good of a manager he, he is. He, I mean, the meme of him it. holding up the football with the blackboard in the background goes exactly around a lot. Him, but but he is he yeah. is quite literally a deep thinker about football. Yeah. He's very uh, tactically astute, and and maybe Arsenal needed uh, maybe a little bit more personality and leadership from mm. their coach when they've got a young group. Um, you know he's he's quite a um, a technocrat, shall yeah, we say? Technocrat. That's a new one. That's a new one. <laughs> you know he's a, he's a man about the fine details, yeah. and and perhaps not the most charismatic uh, head coach. Mm. Um, and maybe maybe Arteta sort mad, of resonates with that group. The a mad, bit the mad science. Um, and and I guess outside of uh, Spain, you know, coaching in a second language was was tough mm. for him. Um, but you know, I, I think he was he was done dirty at the Arsenal, and I, I like to to see his his side Villarreal chasing the Champions League. I think it is a demonstration of just how how sharp a manager he really is. Well, before we go, Josh, uh, just some fixtures to keep an eye on for you guys at home. Coppa Italia this week in midweek, Milan Inter on Wednesday, but Thursday as well is quite a tasty fixture. Fiorentina hosts Juventus. That means Dusan Vlaovic returning to Florence. And we know in the past, we know that there's been quite a few players who have made the move from the Viola to the Bianconeri. And we've seen the reception they've got when they've gone back to Florence. You're going to want to see it because it's going to be freaking hostile, putting it bluntly. Mm. Um, That's going to be a really fun games to watch, but hopefully as well, we can actually watch the games here in Australia. So if if you're out there, you know where we can watch these games because they used to be on YouTube, Josh, but for some reason this year they've completely taken them off YouTube. They're not on Kyo. It feels like deja vu from the start of the season all over again. Bloody hell. Doing my heading. Doing my heading. Well, but, I mean, the Serie A rights were only picked up a day in advance. Or something it was not like even that. a day. It was like hours. six hours before <laughs> the first game. Or it was like a Saturday night. And Bean just goes, we have the rights. And the game starts at 2 a.m. It's like, you... Bloody stupid. Anyways, in terms of the rest of the games to look forward to this weekend, some big ones all around the continent. In Spain this weekend, as mentioned, the title race still alive. Real Madrid versus Real Sociedad on Sunday morning at 7am. Real Betis against Atleti the next morning at uh, 7am as well. Uh, Elche against Barcelona and as well severe inaction against Deportivo Alaves to kick off the round on Saturday. Serie A, Inter against Salernitana, Milan against Napoli, as mentioned, two of the big games to keep an eye on. And also as well, we've got to keep give, give, give a bit of a love to our friends in Germany, despite that title race all but being done. Bayern Munich versus Bayer Leverkusen on Sunday morning at 1.30 is the pick of the games. But Josh, time for us to say goodbye. We'll be back again next Monday from 6pm 
p.m. here on FNR Football Nation Radio. Make sure you leave us a like, subscribe, give us a review wherever you get any of these, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, if you're still hanging around on SoundCloud these days. But wherever you do so, make sure you subscribe and catch up on all of it and all your other favourite podcasts. We'll be back again tomorrow, Oz Football Hour, Radio Dub. Green Room later this week. Some yes. big guests coming in again. Yeah, special feature coming up on the Green Room. Look out for that one. Absolutely. Western United are flying as well, so make sure you keep an eye on that one on Wednesday. So for myself, Nick Tabano and Josh Parrish, back again next Monday. Sometimes I feel... I don't know. I don't know. Buona giornata. Buona serata. Buona giornata. There's not really time to relax and take an espresso for Juventus. <laughs> You don't have to get a bad attitude. You don't have to get a bad attitude. Attaccare!